I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined. This week, how one man's journey riding the waves nurtured his faith in God. I talk with former pastor and renowned California surfer Britt Merrick about his faith, his ministry, and his relationship with the ocean. And whether the waves are good or not, I come out feeling refreshed and sort of whole. And I realize people that are close to me will tell you this, and I think this is true for all surfers, but if you don't get in the water on a regular basis, you're not your best you. Later, Merrick talks about his ministry, his Orthodox Christian beliefs, and how, after the death of his seven-year-old daughter, he turned to the ocean and to surfing. And I surfed, and I surfed, and I surfed, and I surfed. And I found such incredible healing in that, in the water, in the act, in the exercise, in the outdoors, and in that community. God, surfing, and their interconnections. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Water. It plays an important role in many religious practices and rituals. It's used in baptism, birth, and burial. For surfers, the ocean is their spiritual home, waiting for the perfect wave, watching the ebb and flow of the water, being immersed in something bigger than them. So does surfing offer something more than just a physical pursuit? Do surfers have a unique relationship with God, however you define it, and with nature? One person with insight into this question is Britt Merrick. He's the son of Al Merrick, who founded Channel Island Surfboards. The company is one of the biggest and most prestigious surfboard manufacturers in the world. And it was in this surf culture that Britt grew up. But his life would take some unexpected turns, which included becoming a pastor, founding Reality Church, which has locations all across the U.S., and eventually returning to his family's company as a surfboard shaper. Well, Britt Merrick, thanks for joining us on KCRW. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I, let's just let's just start early here. I, I mean, your your history fascinates me so much. Whether it's from your work uh, in in the world of faith or in surfing, but I'm so curious about your childhood and the kind of the world in which you grew up. Um, can you kind of just take us back to some early memories? Maybe of being near the ocean or your first time surfing. What are what are some of the things that stick with you when you think of your childhood? Yeah, you know, I grew up in a beach family. I grew up in a surfing family and really where surfing was everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why my parents started the business they did, Channel Island Surfboards. Um, Surfing was everything. So all my earliest memories are on the beach. Mm -hmm. And when my dad was working, my mom would have us at the beach. That was like our park or, you know, our daycare, whatever. And then as soon as I was old enough, my dad would take me surfing. Actually, my dad tells a story that he put me on a board for the first time when I was about three years old. Wow. (laughs) And he pushed me into a wave. And of course, I fell off the board Mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I didn't know how to swim yet. I was three and I was underwater and he was reaching underwater for me, trying to find me underwater by just feeling my body and grab me and pull me up. And he said, my mom was very upset. (laughs) But so I don't even remember that. So my experience with surfing predates my memory. Mm. And then I also have strong childhood memories of growing up in the surf shop mm-hmm. and in the surfboard factory. Right. Channel Islands, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Started here in Santa Barbara um, on Helena Avenue, right down by the harbor. And, you know, my mom and dad both went all in on that business. They put everything that they had into it. And they both worked two jobs at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the only place for me to be really was there with them. And I still meet people all around the world. They're like, man, I went to Channel Islands in 1974. And there you were just bouncing around the surfboards. Your mom was trying to keep you from knocking them over. (laughs) Right, right. And then I have memories of just watching my dad make surfboards by hand. Mm -hmm. And um, you know how strong the sense of smell is. Sure. So it's a surfboard factory. So the the smell of resin Mm -hmm. is really, really powerful for me. It's sort of repulsive to most people but for me it smells like home right it smells like my childhood like security and then foam dust is a very tactile oh, thing yeah. yep. you know and so there's all these smells and feels that um are involved in surfboards in my childhood yeah totally i and they say the sense of smell triggers memory almost more than anything else yeah i think so, it does yeah do you kind of remember, uh, I mean, it's it's amazing that, of course, surfing for you predates memory in a sense. Do you remember, though, w- when you started to fall in love with the feeling of surfing? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I actually do. I think my strongest memory around that would be in grade school. Mm-hmm. And my dad would pick me up uh, every day 
from school and take me to Rincon surfing. Yeah. And I think that's really where it started to click. You know, I think that experience of going with my father mm-hmm. and being there, um, I think there was a sense of independence because my dad just kind of said, okay, we're here at the beach. You do it. I'm going up here with the big boys. Yep. You pile out here and figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of like being immersed in this um, social culture of surfing, yeah. being out in the lineup and, and learning those rules, you know, and mm-hmm. learning the etiquette there and then learning how to survive at a place like Rincon. I can remember days where the waves were really big and I was just paddling for the horizon as <laughs> yep. fast as I could. Trying just, to stay alive. Yeah. yeah, scared for my life, you yeah. know. My dad would surf till dark every day. So I'd be in on the beach just kind of like standing there in the dark waiting for him to come in. And that's when I realized like, hey, this is like we're really giving ourselves to this thing, or at least I am, like my dad had already. But it, where it really became a passion, it clicked. Rincon is a world-class wave. Right. And so at a very For our young... listeners, that's here in near Santa Barbara, California, in Carpinteria, California, where you and I both happen to live, actually. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, one of the best places in the world, but don't that's move right. here. That's right. <laughs> stay away. <laughs> stay south. Stay north. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was in grade school where it really clicked for yeah. me. Yeah. I, I just want to kind of keep exploring that, I mean, while we're on it. I mean, how how the love of your ocean, how how your love of the ocean would kind of continue to evolve and manifest. Yeah. I mean, how, how did that kind of continue to come up for you as you grew? You know, I think it's more important now than ever. Hmm. And surfing is a very interesting thing. It really grows with you or maybe you grow in your understanding and experience of it. Mm-hmm. It changes, you know, at a young age, like a lot of things, it's angsty and it's about being good or yeah. being the best or getting the most waves. And and then it becomes maybe about exercise at some point. But I think at this age, now I'm 48, mm-hmm. it becomes more of a meditation really. Mm. And it's kind of my safe place yeah. and, and a quiet place and a familiar place. And it's a place that resets everything. Mm. I mean, I just heard on the radio the other day some study about or on a podcast or something, some study about all the benefits of salt water mm-hmm. and immersing yourself in it. Mm-hmm. And as they were going through this list, I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. You feel them. Yeah. yeah, all these things. Because when you get in the water, it's incredibly cathartic just to spend time in the salt water and the movement of it, mm-hmm. the life that's out there, you know, the birds that come by. Yeah. And in this area, we're blessed to have like dolphins and whales yeah. and seals. I mean, you see them all the time and sharks and all the things. Yep. There's all this life around you. There's all this movement. It's so tactile. And so I think that every time I go in the water, um, it's one of those focal activities where other stuff doesn't matter for a moment. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about my problems on land. Right. I'm not thinking about all my internal sort of dialogue that can be so whatever we all have going on. Mm-hmm. But I'm just fully immersed in this environment. Right. And whether the waves are good or not, I come out feeling refreshed and renewed and sort of whole. Yeah, Really, I, I feel whole. I feel... And I realize people that are close to me will tell you this, and I think this is true for all surfers, but if you don't get in the water on a regular basis, you're not your best you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you use that word meditation. That That's one that kind of comes up for me, I know, is a lot as uh, when I go surf is, is that feeling of... Of, of mindfulness, of being 100% present, because that's what the ocean asks of you, I think, mm. when you're out there. Don't you think? I agree. And I think present is really a key word there. You're absolutely right. I mean, the ocean is one of the most powerful forces in the world, mm-hmm. and you're in it. And so, yeah, you have to be. You have to be present. And I think it begs you to be present. It just draws you in. And then, you know, I like to get into situations where the waves are intense and challenging, and then you're just even more focused and present and drawn in. Yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of addicting, isn't it? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. yeah. It, it, see, I I feel like there's this, there's probably this incredible story of your evolution in surfing, and yet I'm also thinking along the way of your evolution as, as a person who is very spiritual mm. at the same time. And if we keep the ocean as, as this theme right now between us, did you ever begin to feel a crossover in those two worlds as you were growing up? That is such a great question. You know, I think that, so I grew up in a Christian home mm-hmm. with <clears throat> parents who were legitimately Christian. I yeah. mean, 
like actually practice the faith and they practice it in the way that they were kind to people, the integrity of their lives and their business. Um, I saw like authentic Christianity, which I think is rare. Mm. And in my high school years, I walked away from it, Mm -hmm. um, got into partying and the whole scene and drugs and got way into drugs, got arrested on my high school campus for selling drugs. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I did. (laughs) Wow. And, uh, Which must have been a, a formative experience, I'd imagine. Yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah. That was a big deal. And then after high school, uh, you know, I got, I got pretty out there in high school to the degree that my parents said, listen, if you get through high school, okay, yeah. we will help you go on a surf trip around the world. Whoa. Okay. So, right. <laughs> basically, now, now you're listening suddenly. Yeah. yeah. That, was, <laughs> that was like the get it together call. And I was like, okay, I'll get it together. Graduated, did fine. Went on the surf trip around the world. Ended up in Australia. And was a bit homesick there. Mm -hmm. I left my girlfriend, Mm -hmm. missed my parents, missed my mom. I'm a mama's boy through and through. It's first time. I was 18 years old. First time overseas, you know, and I I was just missing home. And I met this American guy there, the only American around. And he happened to be a Christian. Mm. He didn't know whether I was or not, but he invited me to do a church service. And I hadn't been to church in several years. And I went more or less because I was lonely and homesick. And he he felt a little bit like home. But when I went there, there was this reconnection with my faith that was really, really profound. Hmm. It was really the prodigal moment. It was like the prodigal coming home. Hmm. And that happened on a surf trip. Interesting. Yeah. So at that point, for me, there was this real connection, I think, between these two lives, Hmm. you know, of surfing and my spirituality and how one had led me to the other. This pursuit of surf had led me back to Jesus and mm. Christianity. Mm. And then I began to get involved in Christian ministry and got real serious about it. And I think in my own mind, though I haven't reflected on this much, but I think it's clear to me now that in my own mind then, I, I, I perhaps bifurcated things pretty, pretty profoundly because to me it felt like surfing for a while there, I perceived it as being superfluous and a fun activity, but I've got some real work to do here. Oh, interesting. So now they're, now they're kind of different. They're yeah. Two different worlds as if maybe living two different lives or different interests, I guess. Yeah. Or maybe I just, um, assigned, assigned a tremendous amount of value to one yeah. and not enough to the other. Yeah, interesting. And so prioritize my life accordingly. Mm-hmm. So wasn't as passionate about surfing for a while. And then I realized that that, I wasn't my best me mm. when I wasn't deeply involved in surfing, that in surfing there was some gift that God had for me. Hmm. There was some way that I connected with God and truth and creation and who I was through the surfing thing. And it was actually one of my parishioners who told me, you know, who had known me for a long time and said, I, I, I noticed you're not surfing that much anymore. Hmm. You're better when you're spending time in the water. And as someone who receives your ministry and your preaching and your leadership, I can tell when you've been surfing and when you haven't been. <laughs> wow. And I would prefer that you surf. How did that, that, yeah, how did that feel when you heard that? Liberating. In hindsight, yeah. incredibly liberating. Mm-hmm. At the moment, knowing my ego, I was probably slightly put off. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm not great all the time? Yeah, 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 exactly. But it was liberating and it was true. Mm-hmm. And what, a, what an incredible insight for someone to have and what mm-hmm. a loving thing for someone to say. Mm-hmm. So somewhere around that point, I really began to give myself to surfing again. Mm. And I realize now that the two are just deeply intertwined, as they should be. Surfing is a gift from God. And um, I see it as that. Yes, let's stay there. This, I'm so interested in this, in this subject. Um, how, how did you begin to, to kind of to, to make that or to have that revelation? I mean, did you, once, once you heard you're not your best self when you're not in the water, and maybe you started to find this connection between your spiritual life and surfing, how did that, how did that suddenly feel as you went back out into the water? Did, 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 did anything begin to change for you, do you think? Yes, I think that to some degree, my theology changed. I think that I began to have a, a more robust theology of creation hmm. and of God as being a benevolent, loving creator who, as the New Testament says, created all things for us to enjoy. Hmm. And I think I was too austere for a few years. And I found 
Um, I think there was a, a, a broadening of the scope of my theology through that, my understanding of who God was and his kindness. Um, that intersected with my own fatherhood then at the time. Mm-hmm. These things were happening, so, happening sort of concurrently. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, I think that was really sort of eye-opening to me. And so then I began to value surfing much more because now it intersected with my faith. Right. And it intersected with my spirituality and it intersected with my concept of God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I was able to do it with a feeling of gratitude mm. and never a feeling of guilt. <laughs> There's a lot of guilt in surfing because I think we have to put the rest of our life on hold oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. It demands some time of you. Yeah. And so I think that that idea of kind of expanding your theology is fascinating. Would you say, um, I don't know, there was something in in the kind of vastness of the ocean, the beauty of the ocean, the playfulness of surfing. I mean, did that all factor in? Or uh, tell me more about how maybe ocean or surfing expanded this this sense of theology for you. Well, first of all, I saw um, intentionality in creation. Hmm. Right, I really, I, I, I've grown up surfing Rincon. That's mm-hmm. still where I surf all the time, and it's a perfect wave. Yeah, and when you look at the structure of it, it's easy for one to think this is designed. Uh huh. There's intentionality behind this, and then me believing in God and being a Christian, I thought, well, why, why would God create it like this? Mm. Well, He created this for us to enjoy it. Sometime in eternity past, God in His love and in His wisdom looked and said, "I'll make the coastline like this." I'll make storms work this way. Mm. I'll invent bathymetry that works this way. And there'll be these waves and people are going to enjoy them. Mm. So that, I think, was profound. And that opened up my understanding. Um, And then, yeah, you know, the vastness of the ocean, uh, the tactile quality of it, one's own smallness when you're in it. I think all of those things intersect. I think there is something to that um, when you're surfing, at least, is is you you can feel so powerless sometimes yeah. out there. You can feel that you are at the whims of something greater happening around you, which to me, there's so much metaphor there, not just in Christianity, but I think in any in any kind of spiritual practice, don't you think? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, as people in general, we tend to overvalue ourselves mm. and have an inflated sense of self and maybe ego. And I think that all spirituality aims at bringing the ego down a bit mm. because I think human happiness thrives when we consider ourselves less and we consider others more. And when we see ourselves as um, underneath a benevolent God, I think that that human happiness thrives in that condition mm-hmm. and that most spirituality aims for something like that. Yeah. At least certainly a, a certain humble quality yeah. is kind of a through line, I think. Yes. Yeah. You know, you said earlier too, that you grew up in a house uh, that, that w- was very Christian. And I know there's a, there's an interesting story about your father who started, and I think your mother too, who started, um, Channel Islands, that they went through a major conversion. And if I have the story correct, it has something to do with trying to cross the border with drugs or something like that? Is <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Is, do I have that right? Yeah, well, it's the late 60s on the coast in California. Yeah. And, you know, the late 60s were what they were. Neither of us were alive, but <laughs> right? we can only imagine. And, um, yeah, my parents were running drugs from Mexico up to this area in Santa Barbara. Wow. And had a VW bus where they would remove the floors and the walls, and they were full of drugs, and they got busted for doing that. And they both went to prison. My mm-hmm. dad went to prison for eight months, mm-hmm. and they both met Jesus in prison separately. Huh. And my mom tells the story of being in jail here in Santa Barbara, and there's a local Christian college in our area here at Westmont. Yeah, Westmont College. Yeah, and so the Westmont kids would go visit people in jail. And so some girls from Westmont went to go visit my mom or whoever was in jail at the time. My mom happened to be there and they were talking to her about Jesus Mm -hmm. and the need for the forgiveness of sins and how Jesus provides that through the cross. And they were telling my mom this and my mom looked at them and said, well, I'm not a sinner. And they looked at my mom and said, Terry, you're in jail. Yeah. And at that (laughs) moment, there was a light bulb that Mm -hmm. went off for her. 
and she had a conversion experience. And then my dad had his own in prison. And when they came out, everything was different. So they had these things independently of each other. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So they, they then, they, they, they meet up again. And as you said, their life is very different. And gosh, I mean, I'm thinking of Southern California, late sixties, early seventies. Was there, was there a community that they were a part of, or was this kind of in the air then? What, what would that have been like for them? I think in their new, their new path. Yeah, I hear a lot of stories about them hosting Bible studies mm-hmm. in Channel Island surfboards. Yeah, in the at, retail at, like the, at the retail store. At said, the retail yeah. store, yeah. Wow, they would host Bible studies in there. I've actually met people from around the world who were like, "Hey, I went to a Bible study at your parents' store in the early '70s, and I got <laughs> saved. Wow. I gave my life to Jesus." Huh. And I've talked to people who said, I would go to get a board from your dad, and he would sit down with me in the shaping room and say, before I make you a surfboard, I want to tell you about Jesus. Wow. Pretty, like, bold stuff. Very bold Pretty stuff. Pretty cool stuff. And stuff, know? I should say, you would have probably no idea about if, if I hadn't heard this story from you, because Channel Islands is such a global brand yeah. that sponsors pro surfers and in a magazine. So continue. But this is an interesting side story, I think. Yeah. Know? So they... Um, we're doing that, you know, and then for a while, they with some friends owned a Christian coffee shop in Carpinteria. Mm-hmm. And this was a time in the early 70s when there were a lot of Christian bands and stuff. Yeah. And they would come through and stop in the coffee shop and play music. And, you know, there'd be Bible studies and community and all these things. One of, one of the earliest pictures I remember of myself, I was probably maybe two years old and I was in the Christmas play at the Christian coffee shop and I was Joseph okay. in the Christmas play and I'm standing on stage there. I can picture that in my head. But yeah, they were involved in that kind of stuff. So really strong Christian community, an active Christian community. And like I said, when, when I was growing up, it was a real thing. It hmm. wasn't religion. It wasn't austere. It wasn't about uh, rituals or rules. It was really about loving people. Hmm. It was about accepting people. It was about caring for them. Mm-hmm. It was about telling people the truth mm-hmm. about yourself and mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. and God and who mm-hmm. God is. Like r- real, real stuff. Mm. I think I maybe hear in your voice when you say that, that some of that maybe has been lost or that, you know, maybe there's an essence of it that, that, that you wish would come through more often, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy for people to pay a lot of lip service to spirituality, Hmm. religion, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, as opposed to actually living it out. And I think there is in all of us, in every single person, there's hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you see authenticity, that's an incredible thing to see. Mm. You know, and I saw that in them. And I just don't see that a ton yeah. in this world. It's here, of course. I think it's, though, interesting. I, I, I find this, um, I find that Southern California is a particularly interesting place to have this conversation because this is a quote unquote spiritual place. There's a lot of different ideas about spirituality. Um, and some of it can feel kind of. Um, to not have a lot of teeth oftentimes, right. or it's a bit of a show, or it's like, I kind of dabble on this or that. But there's, um, I don't know, there's a lot of questions, I think, around here about this in particular. Do you find that too? Yeah, there is. And I think there's something about our area. I think the beauty of creation here, the immediacy of creation here, um, that sort of creates some sort of yearning in people. Mm. Right. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of spirituality or pseudo spirituality mm-hmm. um, or veneration of creation and, mm-hmm. and that type of stuff around here. But, you know, everybody's got a deep spiritual hunger. Hmm. Everybody does. I don't care who you are in this world. Everybody is created and exists as a spiritual being, as part of who we are. You can't escape it. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you try to ignore it, at some point, your spiritual self is going to be active mm. and longing. Uh, it's like your physical self. You can ignore your physical self only for so long. And then hunger takes over and thirst takes over. And we are also spiritual beings. And you can only ignore your spiritual self for so long mm. before these deep longings come forth. Mm. 
for you, kind of what, for those that I think are kind of trying to understand that part of themselves, how do you understand kind of the spiritual aspect of being a human? What some of those yearnings and longings? What say a little bit more about that? Well, for me, um, being a Christian, I believe that we have within our spiritual selves um, a deep desire to give and receive love. And in a way that even transcends human experience and human ability. Mm -hmm. I think that the spiritual self longs for unconditional love. And that's what Christianity teaches us about God, is that God loves us unconditionally. And to a degree that's beyond what we could fathom. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we hear that truth, it resonates deep within us with this desire to be loved. Mm -hmm. We all have a desire to be loved. We're born with a desire to be loved. And that will be nurtured and that will be maligned throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. We all have failures by our fathers and by our mothers and by others to love us. And so there's this continual thing that, that, that grows that says, I want to be unconditionally loved and known. And I believe that there's a God who wants us to know that he knows us and he mm -hmm. loves us. Mm -hmm. And he wants to be, uh, he wants to give us the opportunity to reciprocate that love. Because we don't only want to be loved, we want to love in that way. And we want to love something perfect. Because it's weird about human relationships. We all have human relationships in which we love somebody, but inevitably that person lets us down. Right, mm -hmm. Whether it's your mom or your dad or your spouse or your kids or your best friend, mm -hmm. everyone that we love in this lifetime will eventually let us down. That's okay. That's human experience. Everyone that loves you is going to be let down by you as well. But I think we have a desire to love somebody who's beyond letting us down. Mm -hmm. And I think that's who God is. And I think that's something that I've discovered, um, loved and being loved. I'll be back with Britt Merrick on KCRW's Life Examined after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW, and continuing our conversation with Britt Merrick about the intersection of surfing and his Christian faith. Well, Britt, how much of what you just said about the giving and receiving of love and the desire to be loved unconditionally, how did that guide your work eventually as a pastor and in the founding of Reality Church? Well, it's really the genesis of, of that story. I mean, that truth that I just sort of spoke to of a God who loves us and wants us to know that um, is what I wanted other people to know. Mm -hmm. And so it really started with me doing what my parents had done, which was trying to communicate that to the people that I surfed with. Mm. So my wife and I literally went down to the beach and just started telling the kids that we surfed with all the time, who seemed like they really needed some help in their lives. They were mm. going the way that I was going in high school. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like in my early 20s when this is going on. Right. And I'm deeply concerned about those kids because I'd been down that road. And the only paradigm that I had was, hey, guys, there's a God who loves you hmm. and who wants your life to be a different story and who wants you to know him and who wants to give you a new way of being and wants to forgive you of sins and give you the hope of eternal life, even beyond this life. And if I could stop you there, because... I know who a lot of these surfers are because I hang out with them a lot. And I'm trying to imagine the story of you going to a beach and saying this to kind of, as we joke around, surf rats, or, yeah. which is kind of an alternative culture. Which yeah. is, and I, I, what, what were those conversations like? Were people open to receiving them? You know, <clears throat> it's like anything else, somewhere and somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I had a bit of an in because of my sort of stature in the surf community through my father and yeah. our business and stuff. So I think they were they were ready to at least, you know, yeah. let, let me Give speak. you one ear at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was actually an incredible response. So we, we had um, a bunch of teenagers who responded and, and gave their lives to the Lord and got saved. And we went mm -hmm. back down to that same beach and baptized them. And that turned into a regular weekly Bible study that my wife and I hosted, very similar to what my parents were doing in the early 70s. And then that sort of um, 
morphed into this Friday night Bible study for college students that mm-hmm. we had here in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And on a good Friday night, there were 800 college students. 800? 800 college students on a yeah. Friday night there for four to five hours. Wow. Doing Christian stuff. You mean they didn't want to be on Del Playa uh, at the frat houses? Maybe they wanted to be. For some reason, they showed up, <laughs> <laughs> which was a, a profoundly um, life-shaping experience. Hmm. You know, that that was – I think that's where I realized, like, this is kind of, this is kind of a thing. Hmm. This is kind of a thing. I mean, to have this many kids on a Friday night going really hard after truth and God and spirituality – Nobody's playing games, no masks, really doing it. That's when I realized, like, gosh, this is, this feels like a move of God. Hmm. This, this is bigger than me, for sure. This is pretty profound. So out of that, we ended up starting a church in Carpinteria, my hometown, and several since then. But that was the genesis of it, was just wanting these kids to know, hey, you're loved. Hmm. And there's a God who wants you to know him, and he wants to give your life a better story. I mean, what were these... I wonder how your message was different than the other hundreds of churches nearby. And to me, this is an important question because, um, you know, I, I'm very interested in how and how churches survive long term, as we do see numbers dropping in certain traditional churches. Um, how do you think the message was different? Well, <clears throat> I'm not I'm not totally sure it was different or not, but. I, I, here, here's here's what I think. I, I, people are usually surprised to find out that I'm uh, I'm an Orthodox conservative Christian. Hmm. So I think that oftentimes people soft sell messages, mm-hmm. and I don't think people are looking for that. Mm-hmm. I think they soft sell messages because they think that's you know otherwise you're going to offend people or that's what they want or don't give them too much or don't come off as too dogmatic. I understand the sentiments, but I actually think in a world that is as confounded and confusing as ours, people are looking for clear truth. So one of our values was be clear about the truth. Mm-hmm. And be unapologetic about it. Don't be a jerk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Don't be a, a dogmatic, fundamentalist, <laughs> blind guy. But but be clear about the truth. And for us, that truth was Holy Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so we would teach Scripture. And I would teach sermons that were an hour long. I think that the other value that we had was um, transparency and leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh I think there is a general distrust in, of people in spiritual authority. And I think that there should be, hmm. honestly. You know, I think that as a culture, as a world, throughout history, we've seen a lot of abuse of that space. And then the final thing I think that appealed to people was an opportunity for experience. So we tried to create an atmosphere where that could happen through music, through ritual, even through lights and um, physical postures of worship and mm-hmm. being, through silence, through prayer, through community stuff, uh, but a place where people could really experience God. And they did. Mm. I mean, they really did. We really experienced God to a way that was undeniable. We were having these experiences with God that were just undeniable hmm. and transformative yeah. and beautiful. So I think those three things kind of were appealing. Well, I, 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 I do want to ask, because you, you, you've stated kind of how you are, and to the surprise of some, an Orthodox conservative Christian. So, so I do have to ask, I mean, as we see these younger ge- uh, generations come along, that are more comfortable with things that may not fit directly into that, let's say, a queer identity or homosexuality. How how do your views and the church's views at reality then kind of jive with that? Is is there open thinking? Is there flexibility? Or I, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, what a wonderful question. Um, certainly there is open thinking. I mean, what we have learned about God is that God loves all people. Mm-hmm. And that God accepts all people and that he invites all people into a relationship with him. Therefore, this thing that we believe that we're doing is about all people. Mm -hmm. And so it's meant to be inclusive, absolutely inclusive. It doesn't mean that God won't call all of us without exception to changes in the way that we live, in the way that we see the world. I mean, why would we not be open to that? But in the sense of... uh 
in terms of how we can all grow in other ways would your church though ever try and instruct someone to change their sexuality ever or yeah look i believe that all of us are broken in our sexuality Hmm. all of us gay straight bi whatever Mm -hmm. we all have things that we need to learn in our sexuality I think that the problem with much of our culture is that we lead with our sexuality. Hmm. I don't think our sexuality was ever meant to be led with. We are so much more than who we sleep with. Mm -hmm. We're so much more than who we choose to sleep with. So I think that the church makes an error when it leads with sexuality. I think that culture makes an error when it leads with sexuality. I think we as people make an error when we do that. Mm -hmm. We're so much more than that. So let's talk about the big picture, and we'll eventually get around to our sexuality where we'll discover we're all broken, Mm. and we all have places that need healing and refinement. I want to now kind of move also on to the story of of you in in this process, of starting this church. You are having a family, which must have been a huge change in your life. And, and I guess I also want to ask about a sensitive subject here, which was, which was a really sad story, which was the death of your daughter. Because I think this must have had such a profound impact on you, and I have a feeling every other component of your life. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, <clears throat> my daughter, Daisy Love, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, with Wilms tumor, it's called. It's a mm-hmm. sort of kidney cancer when she was five years old. And at the time, it had like a 90% um, success rate as far as healing, you know, and and being free from cancer. But hers would not. We fought with it for four and a half years. She relapsed several times. Um, She had something like 20 surgeries. Oh, my gosh. How old was she? This was young, yeah? Yeah, so five, and then she died when she was nine. Mm -hmm. So we fought it for four and a half years, and we just could not beat that thing. Wow. And, you know, we had incredible experiences through that. Um, the faith community, the whole community, the whole community was amazing to mm-hmm. us. But especially our faith community was incredible in the way that they carried us and cared for us. We went through all the tough stuff, all the hard questions about God through that. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that my wife and I had given our lives to serving God and now he's letting our daughter die of cancer? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. How does that impact our view of God? Mm-hmm. How do we look then uh, to God as being all-powerful, mm-hmm. sovereign? Uh, how then is he benevolent? Mm-hmm. If we, with literally millions of people, we had a website for Daisy that got millions and millions of, of views. Mm-hmm. If we, It was called PrayForDaisy.com. If we had millions of people around the world praying mm-hmm. and she was still dying, what does that mean? We had to wrestle through all that. She had to wrestle through that. As an eight and a nine-year-old, she, she had to wrestle through her own mortality. And, um, you know, we'll never be the same from that. You're never the same after losing a child, nor should you be. You know, mm-hmm. that would dishonor who they were in your life. Um, and I think for having asked those questions, though I will not pretend to say that we have answers, mm-hmm. but having asked those questions, we're better for it. Our faith is better for it. Um, And, you know, there's something about the human condition that requires suffering. And hopefully no one else, I would never hope that kind of suffering for anybody. But there is a work that is achieved in a human through difficulty. Mm -hmm. That's, I think that's meant to be part of the human experience. Yeah. And I think even Jesus was honest about that. Jesus said to his followers, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning Jesus is bigger than even our problems. And we found that to be true. Somehow in the darkest places, in our deepest pain, in the most terrifying pain of losing a child, when we stepped into those spaces, we found Jesus to be there. Hmm. And that's, that's kind of a thing. It's a big deal. Yeah. That question of how, how can a benevolent God kind of inflict that on someone? Gosh, that's a tough question. Yeah. 
don't know, there are any other thoughts to that? I mean, the, because I, this is a great paradox yeah. that I think has existed forever. Yeah, the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been around forever. If, if I had a really good answer to that, I'd write a book and make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I've written some books and they didn't sell at all. Okay. So I apparently oh. don't have much to say about that. <laughs> uh, my wife actually wrote a wonderful book on uh, her musings called And Still She Laughs, which mm. is a quote from the Old Testament. And Still She Laughs. Yeah. yeah. And Still She Laughs about Sarah, who was going through her own difficulties, mm-hmm. Abraham's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that book... And Still She Laughs by Caitlin Merrick. There's my shameless plug. All right, we got it. Yep. She talks a lot about what it means to struggle with those questions in real time mm-hmm. and, and to really face those head on. And again, we don't come to any profound theological conclusions that would change the world, but we were able to walk through it Yeah. with our faith not only intact, but better, mm-hmm. deeper, still believing that we are loved by God. And still being able to say that we love God. And I think that's profound. Well, thinking again, I think is, is, you know, we reflected on that really difficult subject of, of your daughter. Um, what role did the ocean or, or surfing or, or I, I mean, if, if I haven't said it yet, you still shape surfboards. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of imagining you going through this wilderness of grief, and I'm wondering if there were any parts of your the the other Brit in the ocean, the shaper, that were yeah. kind of also blossoming at the same time. I'm so glad that you asked that question. So <clears throat> probably a year and a half, maybe a little more before my daughter passed, um, it was a really difficult time. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't shaped surfboards in years. You know, once we started the church, I had walked away from the family surfboard business out of necessity, really. The, the, all the church stuff was just so demanding that I couldn't do both anymore. And I had done both for the better part of a decade. I couldn't do both anymore. I had to walk away from the family business, which was difficult for us all because I was the, the business plan. Mm-hmm. I was going to take over. Yeah, It was a huge part of my identity. It really was all my hopes and dreams. I never dreamed of being a pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor. Um, I wanted to be a surfboard shaper, (laughs) and I wanted to live that life. And I had to surrender that for what I believe God was calling me to do. And so I hadn't shaped a surfboard in years. And in in the depth of my daughter's illness, there was a knock on the door at our home in Carpentry. And I opened the door, and it was this young man named Brian, who as a young teenager, my wife and I had shared Jesus with him. He was one of those kids on the beach Mm. who we had talked to and done some life with for a while, but I hadn't seen him now in years. And he knocked on the door. I was like, surprised to see him. Brian, what are you doing? He said, hey, man, I want to build a shaping room in your backyard. I was like, bro, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I haven't shaped a board in years. He said, I know you haven't but I think you should. I'm going to build you a shaping room. Wow. And it's just one of those moments in life where you just know, okay, this is a thing. Like this is, I saw, okay. And he bought all the materials and he and his father went to my backyard and they built me this incredible shaping room and left. Hmm. And uh, I went back there, got a, got a, a phone blank got my tools back together, hadn't touched them in years, and went into that room and began to work with that foam again. And man, it was like this whole magical world that I left behind opened right back up to me. And I had not had an experience of the rest of the world fading away like that maybe ever. When I got in there and started doing that again, nothing else entered my mind. It fully absorbed my whole being. All of who I was was completely involved in this practice, this act, this art, Mm -hmm. this craft of shaping a surfboard. To such a degree that for a moment, I wasn't thinking about my daughter's cancer. I wasn't thinking about my pain. I wasn't thinking about the darkness of it all or the weight of it all. I wasn't thinking about all the hospital time that I'd have to do that week. 
I was just fully immersed in this craft. Mm. And if I'm going to be honest in a real profound way, at that moment, shaping surfboard saved me. It saved me in a way because I had this healthy, blessed place of escape. That hmm. was really, really profound. And in that, I discovered, hey, this is a huge part of who I am. I need to get back to this. This is in my blood. I was a little kid rolling around in a surf shop and in my dad's shaping room. I was, I was born with foam dust in my hair between my toes. And I, I rediscovered a part of myself that God had put in me, that God had gifted me with, that God had blessed me with. And I, I think that it was God's grace. I think that it was God's providence that Brian came to my door and that he did that, that incredible act of kindness and generosity. And so I haven't stopped since then. I started shaping surfboards. I have not stopped since then. And I've fully given myself to it. And it's been hugely important. And then after my daughter died, I went to the beach. I, I did not know where else to go or what else to do. And I went to the beach I grew up on, Rincon. And I went and I just surfed. Hmm. And I surfed and I surfed and I surfed and I surfed. And I found such incredible healing in that, in the water, in the act, in the exercise, in the outdoors, and in that community. There was a way that the surfing community loved me. They all knew about the loss of my daughters, mm -hmm. you know, fairly high profile in our community. They all knew. And there was a way that they loved me out in the lineup in Rincon that was really beautiful. Hmm. And so truly then, shaping surfboards and riding surfboards have been indispensable in my healing coping and then healing through the experience of um, losing my daughter. Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, thanks for asking. That idea and that image of you going back into the, the shaping bay and having the rest of the world kind of just, just fall away, it's so interesting. I mean, it's almost like it's as if you were kind of having a religious experience in and of itself just doing that. Right. I mean, so much of of losing yourself, giving yourself to something, uh, being fully present. It, I, it, there seems to be so much happening in that moment when I listen to you say it, you know, and the merging of these different parts of yourself. Yeah, it really is. As you're perceiving, it really was that profound. And, you know, I, I think that we're all meant to have those experiences. Some might call them focal activities. For me, I think it was probably um, the experience was perhaps hyper-exaggerated because of my, my circumstances. Sure. But I think as humans, God has intended that we all have focal activities that are gifts from him, things that engage the whole of who we are, mm. mind, body, and spirit. They engage all those things and all of our senses so that when we dive into them, uh, we, we we do a work that 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 demands the whole of who we are. We experience a catharsis in doing that. We have a freedom in doing that, and we're so engaged in that activity or that work or that recreation that when we come out of it, no matter how physically strenuous or mentally demanding or spiritually engaging it was, we come out of it feeling refreshed. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people that they discover in their lives what those things are, what your focal activities are. I think for some people, they might have to go back to their childhood. And what did I love to do as a child? You know, maybe it was soccer. Maybe it was hiking. Maybe it was some other hobby. But I think that we're meant to do those things. I don't think we're meant to spend our lives in cubicles. I don't think we're meant to spend our lives only at a job, you know. Um, I think we're meant to enjoy creation and the ability of our, of our whole being and the apparatuses, the apparatus that God has given us, all mm. this stuff around us. And I think it's part of the human sort of adventure to discover what those things are and to go after them mm -hmm. and to enjoy them. Life is short. Like, mm -hmm. find those things. And, you know, it's really cool when 
that thing can also be your work. What a gift, right? Yeah. For me now, that's my work, making surfboards. And that's also that focal activity for me. What an incredible gift. Mm. What an incredible gift. And I would hope that so many people could discover what that thing is that they could be fully consumed by and then somehow figure out how to make a buck off that. What a cool thing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Whether or not you make a buck or not, you know, you, you need to, for your own well-being, discover those activities and do them. And I think it's probably important for our listeners to know that you've since um, – kind of uh, are, are less involved day-to-day with, with the church. Yes. And you're a surfboard shaper. Yeah. That's what you do now. Yeah, that's what I do. I make <laughs> surfboards, I surf, hang out <laughs> with my family. It's a really good life. And, you know, that, that, that must have kind of been a really amazing decision for you to kind of come full circle in a way, right? Uh, yeah, it is full circle. <clears throat> and... Excuse me. It has been an amazing process. You know, it was really a dream that I surrendered at a time in my life that I feel like God brought back around at an opportune time in a way that I never could have imagined. You know, I never could have wrote the story for my life that God has written for my life. And I'm sure that that's true for all people, you know, and I'm so thankful to have been able to and to still be walking in that story and experience that and see how it unfolds and look back and be like, wow, how crazy, Mm. how cool and how kind of God to uh, let me experience all that and to do this again. I'm really, I'm really happy and I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful. And you love waking up and making surfboards every day. Yeah, man. Love it. Well, Brett Merrick, it's been it's been a pleasure to have you in here. Thanks for sharing these stories and um, for for the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been fun. Brett Merrick is the founder of Reality Church, where he was a pastor for a number of years. He now shapes surfboards at his family's company, Channel Island Surfboards. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. The show is produced by Andrea Brody with digital support from Jennifer Wolf. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.